welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you are here with us. We've been talking a lot on this show about the ways that black and brown communities are being hit harder by this pandemic than other communities. But it's important to note when we talk about that, that what's happening isn't new. Communities of color have long fallen victim to wide disparities when it comes to health. Right here at Wayne State, the president of the university is someone who has a unique view on these issues. As a leader in higher ed, but also as a medical researcher by trade who has a degree in epidemiology. And as the former deputy director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities at the National Institutes of Health. President M. Roy Wilson recently penned an op-ed in the Detroit Free Press titled, Race Disparities Amid Infectious Diseases Aren't New, It's Time We Took Action. Dr. Wilson joins us now to talk about that op-ed and the racial disparities that we are seeing. Dr. Wilson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, uh, Stephen. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I hope you and your family are well as well. Um, So let's start with this op-ed that you wrote in the Free Press. You say you're not surprised by the numbers that we're seeing, despite the fact that uh, African-Americans make up just 14% of the population in Michigan. We account for about 40% of the COVID-19 deaths so far. That, That gap is shocking to a lot of people. Tell us why it doesn't surprise you. Well, health, underlying health disparities have, have been going on in this country for a long time. As you might have recall from my op-ed, I mentioned the Heckler report, which was Margaret Heckler was the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services under Ronald Reagan, and she uh, put a task force together that uh, looked at health of the nation at that time. And the uh, task force report was uh, came out and in, in showed that there were 60,000 excess deaths in the United States in black and minority populations per year. And excess deaths were defined as deaths that would not have occurred if the death rate in that population was the same as the white population. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've known for a long time. In fact, that's how the uh, National Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities ultimately got created, was to address uh, this disparity that was noted at that time, and and the diseases that mainly caused it was um, was talked about cardiovascular disease, hypertension, stroke, you know those kinds of things. And uh, what we've come to understand much better now is that you know there are these underlying conditions, um, social determinants of health, that determine you know, how healthy you are, and it, it's uh, based on where you live, where you play, where you work, where you pray. And uh, and those factors determine whether or not you have access to uh, healthy foods, whether you have access to exercise, uh, a park. Um, there, there are so many issues that adversely impact uh, not only African Americans, but those of lower socioeconomic uh, status. And you know, one is uh, um, not quite a proxy for the other, but but certainly from on a population basis, uh, you'll you'll find lower socioeconomic status right. in the African American population. Yeah. yeah. So, give us some of the background on your time as deputy director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities at uh, NIH. What were some of the things you worked on there, and how do they relate to the things that we're seeing today? Well, there's two things that. 
I worked on one of which I'm particularly proud of, but um, one was the National Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities was responsible for the strategic plan on health disparities for the entire NIH. So there are, I don't, I can't remember how many centers, let's say there's 25 centers and institutes within NIH, mm-hmm. things like the National Cancer Institute, um, uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. All of those institutes have their own um, health disparity portfolio, particularly the National Cancer Institute. Uh, but there was a uh, one strategic plan, a trans NIH strategic plan, and that plan was uh, supposed to be uh, coordinated by the National Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities. So I led that effort when I was there. The the thing though that I'm I'm very proud about is, and it, it wasn't something that was led by NIMHD, but it was uh, I, I was uh, co-chair of the uh, committee that uh, came up with this um, program. And that is a program which we have some funding for here in Detroit, the Rebuild Program, Building uh, University Infrastructure Leading to Diversity. And that's a program to try to get um, socioeconomically disadvantaged and minority kids into biomedical research Mm -hmm. so that uh, they can have independent careers as biomedical researchers. And uh, when I first came here, we developed a consortium with uh, Detroit Mercy, uh, Wayne State, and some community colleges, and we were successful in getting that grant. It's in the second five years now. It's a, it's a big grant. It's twenty some million dollars per. Yeah, it's, so it's a it's a big grant. Hmm. Hmm. So so you have a degree in epidemiology. Talk about how a disease like this spreads differently in different communities and why we see that happening. I think for a lot of people, they're hearing a lot about this this disproportionate impact on communities of color. And I think there's there are some assumptions being made about about those differences. And, and yeah. you talked about, you know, differences in access to health and, and nutrition and things like that. But but talk about how the epidemiological right. side of this might be playing playing havoc as well. Yeah, so there there are two things that we can talk about. They're slightly different. So one is why do African Americans get it more? And the other is why do they die more from it? Mm-hmm. The the die more from it is mainly going to be because they have more comorbidities. They have other diseases. They're sicker. Um, by by and large, hypertension, diabetes, asthma, cardiovascular disease. So African Americans tend to have many more uh, comorbidities than um, than other populations, and so uh, that's the reason why they're dying more. Mm-hmm. And they also die more because because uh, there is some implicit bias, and they're not getting tested as frequently, and and there are some other uh, factors like that. Now, why are they actually getting it more? Well, that's a different question, and they're getting it more because they're exposed, they have more chances of being exposed to it. And the reason why they have more chances to be exposed to it, well, first of all, they're in jobs that um, can't be done uh, remotely. Um, you know, there are, a lot of them are frontline workers, whether it's uh, uh, police officers or firefighters, um, uh, uh, custodial uh, staff, mm-hmm. uh, uh, groundskeepers, bus drivers, 
I mean, these are these are work that can't be done remotely, and so there's greater chance of exposure uh, to the virus. Uh, the living conditions are sometimes um, also um, um, uh, different in the sense that you know they're that they don't have as big a house as some some other people and um, are going to live in more crowded uh, situations. So when we tell people, well, you social distance yourself, well, you know, that's easy to say if right. you've got a 3,000-square-foot home and, you know, 10 different rooms. But if, if you've got a, you know, fairly small uh, one- or two-bedroom um, uh, place with you know, three or four people living in it, it it's, a little, it's a little more difficult um, so those are factors. And so it, it's the exposure uh, for getting the disease and it's the comorbidities for dying from the disease. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is M. Roy Wilson. He's the president of Wayne State University. He's also an epidemiologist and someone whose background includes being deputy director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, at the National Institutes of Health. We're talking about the racial disparities that we're seeing on display during the coronavirus pandemic. African-Americans way more impacted, especially here in Southeast Michigan and, and the state of Michigan, uh, than other populations. Uh, we're talking about why that is and what should be done. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you're seeing in your community when it comes to how people are affected by this pandemic and how people are treating it. Uh, do you see differences in the way people are reacting to or being affected by uh, this crisis? This is a subject that we are talking about quite frequently here on the show right now. And as always, we want to hear from you about what you're seeing in your world. We also, as always, during this pandemic, just want to hear from you about how you're doing, what is going on in your life with regard to the pandemic and all of the changes that we need to uh, that we need to be enduring, just to make sure that the disease does not spread as much as uh, as it does, and that so many people are not dying. I know how many people's lives look dramatically different right now than they did just a few weeks ago. And uh, here on Detroit Today, we always want to provide a forum for people just to talk about it and check in with each other. Think of the ways that we are not allowed to connect with each other in the physical world. We can still do it here on the radio. Uh, as always, the number here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Wilson, I also want to uh, get to this question. I mean, we talk a lot about racial disparity, economic disparity in this country. I think it's something that has sort of become a, a master narrative of dialogue in this country in a way that it wasn't 10 or 20 years ago. But but we rarely get to the specifics of, all right, well, how do you turn those things around? What are the things that need to change so that these kind of disparities don't uh, don't present themselves during, during pandemics? Uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you think a reasonable strategy is for doing that? Well, specifically for the uh, COVID-19, uh, one of the issues has been testing. And there, there is some evidence that um, 
African Americans with symptoms, with uh, cough and, and uh, respiratory symptoms, have not been tested as frequently as um, as non-African Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some billing data that shows that. And certainly there's a lot of uh, testimonials. It's just uh, heartbreaking to hear some of these uh, testimonials for, from uh, relatives of uh, of uh, people who have died who you know, talk about how their their father or mother or, or sister tried to get a test when went in to get uh, with symptoms and was somehow was uh, uh, not um, uh, given the test and 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 some of it and this this is not a conscious bias it's not you know I I don't think healthcare providers are saying well you know we're gonna we're going to um, uh, treat one class of people better than another. I, I truly don't think that occurs. But I do think there are some implicit biases and there's some systematic uh, issues that is hard to detect. For example, uh, in the early uh, days of testing, one of the questions that healthcare providers would typically ask if, uh, to determine whether or not you were going to get tested or not is, have you um, traveled internationally? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, more people who are affluent are going right. to travel in, internationally. Um, and But they didn't ask, um, you know, how many rooms do you have in your house and are you able to social distance? You know, that would have been an appropriate question. Right. So, so the, the, that, that is a, a systematic uh, bias. Uh, but also, just um, uh, there is evidence that that implicit bias uh, goes on, and uh, that's very uh, well uh, established. And I don't think there's any you know doubt about that. And again, I don't think it's something that people uh, consciously uh, do. But the more you are aware that that could uh, be an issue, the more uh, you can guard against it. If it was conscious, then it wouldn't be called implicit bias. Implicit bias is you know, sometimes called unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. If it was conscious, then it'd be something else. It'd be prejudice or racist or something else. So it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it is unconscious, but it, it does occur. Um, you know, testing is really important to uh, go to the places where, uh, where African Americans uh, and other minorities uh, live, because they may not be able to get to your test sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of what we're uh, doing with the uh, mobile uh, testing units that that uh, we've partnered with Ford with, and so we're able to actually go to uh, places rather than have a you know a drive drive through where you need a car um, uh, to get tested. Now we're able to drive to these uh, these places and and test um, places where there's a disproportionate uh, uh, numbers of African Americans, or where there are some hot spots, and um, so that'll be, I think, a uh, uh, very uh, useful, a uh, useful thing. Hmm. Uh, I do want to get to to callers, and we've got some who who have specific <clears throat> questions for you. But I also want to note that at nine a.m. today, you, as the president of the university, announced. Another kind of reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, some financial tightening that uh, that you need to that you need to do. I want to give you a chance to talk about how you're dealing with that. We're hearing from lots of institutions of higher ed, of course, about how they are adjusting to this. This is as disruptive 
to those institutions as it is to uh, to, to everybody else. But talk about the, uh, the the measures that you announced this morning. Sure. So this has certainly been disruptive, not only for higher ed, but you know certainly you know just about all industries. And higher ed is is not spared. You know, in the in making decisions related to what best to do in the uh, interests of uh, safety of our employees and and our students, we didn't really consider financial uh, implications. We just made decisions based on what is the right decision to make in terms of safety, but some of these decisions have financial implications. You know, when you um, um, ask students to leave the uh, dormitories, well, uh, that has financial implications, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, So, you know, all universities are feeling uh, the financial pressure, and and I would imagine that some universities uh, may not actually make it. You know, every president of a university I've talked to is talking about the uh, amount of um, uh, revenue that they've lost and are wondering what they're going to have to do in the fall. Um, So I I don't think any of us are are spared, Uh, particularly since it doesn't look like it. I mean, you know, institutions are making their decisions now, but my guess is that uh, most institutions, in fact, the vast majority, are not going to be able to go back to normal in, in the fall. So that may actually uh, cause some uh, effect on enrollment. There's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, you know, one of the principles that we've that we've uh, acted upon is safety first, but also we try to not um, have anyone adversely affected financially if we could help it. Um, uh, it's not you know their fault that uh, this happened and that. Um, uh, they can't come into work, and so we try to keep people whole. Um, so, uh, you know, depend. We've got a number of scenarios, and that's what I said in my in my communication today. There are three different scenarios that I talked about. One is a a five um, uh, percent uh, decrease in our budget, which would be about twenty million dollars. Ten percent, which would be forty, and fifteen uh, percent which would be you know sixty million dollars and each one of those scenarios would have different consequences um, and I was just trying to prepare everyone to what those consequences uh, might be mm-hmm. so so in some cases we've seen universities come out and say specifically what's going to happen with people's pay for instance with furloughs things like that you you're seeing right. them announce pay cuts you you stop short of that in this in, in this yeah. announcement well we did do a couple of things uh, you know we we did um uh hold up uh, merit increases that was due about 2 or 3 weeks ago for all of our non-represented um employees uh, that that saved a, a few million dollars and there were a list of about five or six things that I listed in my letter that we're going to do immediately that um, that will be helpful from a financial perspective. The reason why I, I fell short of saying we're going to lay people off is we still don't know what the what the um, um, financial implications totally are going to be because it's so dependent on uh, factors that we don't have much control over. For example, enrollment. Um, most universities are modeling a decrease in enrollment. Um, you know, right now, uh, I, I will tell you that we uh, are bucking the trend, and um, we're seeing a slight uptick in enrollment. Now, whether or not 
that holds is uh, you know, totally uh, speculation. But if our enrollment is uh, higher than um, you know, people are, are predicting, that would have a, a, a huge uh, impact on our, on our finances. So um, yeah, I just think that it's uh, better not to um, make definitive decisions at, at this time, but to prepare people for what those decisions might have to be. You know, based on what ultimately transpires. The uh, the other issue that we have no idea about is the uh, state funding. You know, the the state is also uh, losing a lot of revenue. Mm -hmm. In the last time this happened, after the uh, recession of 2009, uh, all higher ed institutions took a 15% uh, cut. You might recall in to, in the 2011 budget. Well. You know, if that were to happen, then that's a whole nother story um, uh, than, than um, if that were not to happen. So um, the, the things that we would do or have to do would be very dependent on some things that we have no idea uh, what's going what's gonna to happen right now. So um, the, the point of the letter uh, today was to... Uh, let people know that based on different scenarios, based on different assumptions, uh, these are the things that could happen. And if they, uh, if we did have a, a budget reduction of a certain percent, then we might have to do this or that. Um, um, but I don't want to, you know, go there until we know um, we, we have some more certainty. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get to calls for M. Roy Wilson. There are some specific questions uh, that uh, he is going to be asked by our listeners. Uh, stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WBT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Emory Wilson. He's the president of Wayne State University, also an epidemiologist. We've been talking about racial disparities as they play out during the coronavirus pandemic. We also were talking just briefly about the financial decisions that need to be made at institutions like Wayne State University because of the massive changes brought by the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I want to get to some listener calls, though, for uh, the president. Let's go to Dan S. in Detroit. Dan, welcome to Detroit Today. You there, Dan? Yep, I'm here. Go ahead. Um, I was curious, will we be having in-person classes in the fall? Yeah. Thank you. All right, great yeah. question. I think that's the big, that's the million-dollar question on every campus right, yeah, right now. Yeah, that, that, that certainly is. Well, we, um, we're preparing as if we're not going to be able to. And if we're able to, we would certainly prefer that, and we would do everything possible to, to do that. Um, but I think that we have to prepare as if we're not going to be able to because, you know, these online courses take a while to, to prepare. Um, you know, initially, what was done mid-semester this last time was – not truly online. Some were online, but they, they were more remote 
uh, classes. And if, if now that we have more time, uh, we really want to have a a really good online experience for the for the students, and that takes a lot of preparation time. So we're going to prepare as if we're not going to be able to uh, meet person to person, but if we're able to, that would certainly be our preference, and and we'll pivot in that direction. Yeah, uh, great question, Dan S. And we are all, I think, trying to figure out how that's going to work going forward. Let's go to another Dan from Detroit, Dan H. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the question I have is in regards to the ventilation systems that we use in our buildings, in our restaurants, and in our workplaces, and um, whether or not, for example, when the lift occurs to where people can go to restaurants, it's I would feel better as a customer knowing that there's a sticker on the front of the door that says that this ventilation system has been disinfected. And there are disinfectants that do kill viruses that they do put into these systems. Hmm. So is there a, a way that we can test the current buildings you know, with their ventilation systems to see if there's a possibility that they carry the virus? Hmm. That's a great question. And Dr. Wilson, you know, as we get back to the world in some way at some point, these are the kind of questions that I think are going to come up. Ventilation systems, right? Is that a is that a way that the disease spreads? Or as Dan is asking, is it a way that we could also make make sure that places are cleaner than they used to be? Yeah. Well, you know, certainly... Um when when Delta Airlines sent out a um, um, a communication to all its customers that the uh, air system uh, in their planes uh, do not uh, are, are filtered in a, in such a way that they don't uh, harbor um, any infectious uh, uh, agents from one person to another uh through the um uh ventilation system in the in the airplanes that certainly made me feel a lot better now i have no idea whether whether uh the kind of system that they're talking about because it's totally different than in in built in uh, regular buildings uh can be you know replicated in in buildings or not i'm not an engineer but um i i do uh totally agree with you that from um uh, perspective of feeling more comfortable. Uh, I, I would also feel more comfortable if I felt that um, uh, the ventilation system was uh, not going to be a source of, a, of an infection. You know, the, the system itself is, is, not a, is not an issue because the virus can only live on hard surfaces for a certain amount of time. But it's, it's if somebody has is, is got the virus and is breathing it into the air and somehow that air is getting into the, that the virus is getting into the ventilation system and, and then being circulated back out in a way that uh, causes uh, someone else to, um, you know, inhale that same uh, uh, virus. And I just don't know what the, um, from an engineering standpoint, how the, you know, ventilation systems actually work. But if somebody were to be able to explain that to me and assure me that it's, uh, it's safe, I, I would feel a lot better. Yeah. Okay. Emory Wilson, president of Wayne State University. Always great to have you here on the show. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Be safe. Yes, you too. All right. Bye-bye.
Up next, we're going to have a conversation about the American class struggle that is playing out amid the coronavirus pandemic and hear more from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 